Well, I want to say it's uh, great to be welcomed in. I want to say thanks, Pastor Ed and the team. Uh, you have a great welcoming team here. I've come here a number of times and always feel welcomed in, invited in, and love to be back here. Today, what a special day it is uh, to get to see Faith get baptized. Faith, that was beautiful. And then uh, Gracie, who actually had the privilege of baptizing her, I was pastoring in Ottawa when Gracie was probably three or four years old, and I remember her toddling around, and now to see her leading people in worship and loving the Lord that way, so it's great to reconnect there. And I do bring you greetings from Heritage College and Seminary. I serve there, and my wife Linda is also part of our staff team, our faculty team, and uh, today's kind of a big day for us. Our student leaders come in tonight, and we begin a week of orientation, and then on Labor Day, all the rest of the students arrive. Uh, by God's grace, we're planning to have live and live stream classes this fall. And, uh, you know, I, I brought some literature on, this, on the school, if you'd like to know a little bit more. Those of you who are here on campus, it's out in the lobby. And those of you online, I would just say go to our website, discoverheritage.ca. If you'd like to know about college classes, whether it's for a year of Bible training or a degree or seminary, you guys live a little further away, we're like an hour from the school, but all of our classes are live streamed. You could audit a class if you wanted to. It's an amazing resource for the church, and I would encourage you, if you're thinking about vocational service or just growing in your faith, check us out, Heritage College and Seminary. We'd love to serve the church and serve you as part of it. Well, I have the privilege today of getting part, being part of your Greatest Hits series, and I've gone online and watched some of the previous messages just to kind of see where you've been this summer. And uh, I want to talk to you about seizing the day. And it's going to lead us to a verse that probably wouldn't make the greatest hits list in some people's minds, but it has a greatest hits kind of feel to it. You've probably heard the phrase, seize the day. It is the English translation of the Latin phrase carpe diem. And carpe diem is traced back to a Roman poet named Horace who lived shortly before Jesus lived. So it goes way back. And he wrote a poem that said, tomorrow is unclear, it's uncertain, so carpe diem, seize the day. That was kind of the gist of his poem. Now that phrase, seize the day, has been picked up by other poets. Robert Frost wrote a poem that uses the phrase. Uh, it's been picked up in movies. It's been picked up in songs. There's a Christian singer-songwriter named Carolyn Ahrens, who's out west in Vancouver area. I love her songs, and she wrote a song many years ago called Seize the Day. So it's been a, it's been a specific theme that comes through again and again. It keeps percolating up. And I thought about that phrase, seize the day, when I read a verse in John's gospel. It's where Jesus charges his disciples to seize the day. Now, he doesn't actually use the phrase seize the day, but he uses words that have a very similar ring. And this morning, I was thinking this would be a timely word for those of us here at Springvale those of us scattered watching this online, a challenge to seize the day. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's taught us that life is far more uncertain than we once believed and that the future may be different than what we planned. Like, we don't know what tomorrow holds. In fact, we don't know how many tomorrows we're going to have on this earth. 
but we do know we have today. And Jesus would say to us, well, then seize the day. So today I want to take you to the verse in John that first captured and motivated my heart along that line when I read it. And my hope and my prayer is that as you see it today, as you hear it, as you hear what Jesus said to his first disciples and what he says to those of us who are his current disciples, that you'll understand what it means to seize the day from Jesus' perspective, what he means by that, and then how in the world you can do that, what it means and how to do that. We're going to do that as we look at Jesus' words recorded in John's gospel, John chapter 9. So would you join me there in John chapter 9? And today I want to talk to you about, by God's grace, seizing the day. That's where we're going. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at John 9 together. Father, this is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice in it and be glad. And we're glad we're here today. We're glad we could sing our praises to you. We're glad we could watch faith take a step of baptism. We're glad now that we can open your word and listen hard as your spirit speaks through your word to our lives. So I just put myself in the company of those who want to hear from you today, and I pray you would speak to us personally and powerfully in Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 9 is uh, one of the amazing stories in John's gospel. Let me read you it, and you'll see the backdrop for the one verse that we'll focus on today. John chapter 9 says this. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said this. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, and while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground and he made some mud with the saliva, and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seen. So you kind of get the picture here. This man has the most amazing day he's ever had, right? He's been blind from birth. Jesus makes mud, puts it on his eyes, says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. It's at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel there in the lower part of Jerusalem. He does that, and when he obeys Jesus, suddenly his eyes are open, and for the first time in his life, he can see. Well, you can imagine he didn't stay silent about this. He's overjoyed. He's telling everybody, and a commotion gets started. Look at verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others says, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. So he's going around, tell everyone what happened, and some guy goes, wait a second, is that the dude that used to sit by the gate begging? And people go, it can't be that guy. That guy was blind. And he said, no, 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 I'm the guy. That's me. Verse 11, he, oh, verse 10, they asked, how then were your eyes open? He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. Now, at this point, you need to remember, he's never seen Jesus. Remember, he had mud on his eyes. Jesus says, go wash. So he goes and washes. Now he can see. He knows someone named Jesus helped him, but he has never seen Jesus. 
Verse 11 says, he, Jesus, told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him, how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. See, some of the Pharisees said this, whoever this Jesus is, he can't be from God because he broke the Sabbath. He made mud, and that would constitute his kind of working. He healed someone, that's working, and we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. That was their take on it. But if you pick it back up, some of them said that, but verse 16, others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Some of the religious leaders said, well, it could be from God. Others are saying, it can't be from God. Verse 17, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Verse 20. Well, we know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now catch this. John adds this little parenthetical thought. Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So you get what happened? The parents are standing there and the religious leaders say, tell us, is this your son? Is he the one that was born blind? They go, yeah, yeah. How, did he, how was he healed? And they duck, right? They dodge. They say, well, you know, he's old enough, ask him. Because they don't want to get on the wrong side of the religious leaders. Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, Jesus, they're talking about, is a sinner. He replied, I love his answer. Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Verse 26, they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They're still, they're still puzzling about this. Verse 27, he, the blind man, answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Well, that kind of irks them, right? Verse 28, they hurled insults at him and they said, well, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Verse 34, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. They excommunicated him. Now look at the postscript. Look how this story ends, verse 35. Jesus heard, so he's somewhere else in the city, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. 
And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus says, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Pretty memorable day in the life of that man and all those who knew him, right? Well, the verse that's embedded in the story that captured and motivated my heart when I first read this is back in verse 4. And I want us to zero in on verse 4 because verse 4 has a powerful line about seizing the day. Look at back in chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus says this, as long as, as, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus says you've got to seize the day. Well, as long as it's day, you've got to seize the day by doing the works of God. And what I want to do in our time remaining is I want to reflect on verse 4 a little more deeply. And I want to highlight for you three things that come out about seizing the day by doing the works of God. Because that's what he says we're supposed to do to seize the day, right? Look at it again, verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. You seize the day by doing the works that God has. So I want to highlight for you three things. Three things I've been thinking about for some months now. The, the capture and captivate my heart and motivate my heart. And I bring them to you because what Jesus says to his first disciples, he says to us. Let me highlight three things about doing the works of God that I want you to catch and I want you to take to heart. Here's the first. Jesus is telling us in verse 4 and the surrounding verses that there is a great need to do the works of God. There is this great need to do the works of God. Jesus is saying, you got to seize the day and do the works of God because there's a great need to do the works of God. In our passage, Jesus is passing along, verse 1, and as he passes along, he comes by a man who is blind, seated by the side of the road, probably near the temple in Jerusalem, and the man is begging. We saw that a little bit later, down, uh, uh, I think it's in verse 8. So the man is sitting there. He's a blind man. He has no income coming. There's not a social safety net other than what he can get from family and friends. So he's seated by the edge of the road, and he's begging. Jesus stops, and he sees this man, and that prompts him to say, we must do the works of God. In other words, the works of God are needed because there are people in great need. Like, there's a great need to do the works of God because there's a great number of people who have great needs. We say, what does Jesus mean when he says, because of the need, we must do the works of God? Well, in the story... We find out what the works of God were by watching Jesus. What, what, what does Jesus mean by the works of God? We must do the works of God. What are those works of God? Well, when you look at the account here, you find out, you know what the works of God were in this story? It was meeting the needs of a man in great need. Like doing the works of God was stepping into somebody who had a great need and helping them out. And Jesus did that for this man. 
Think of the needs that he met in this man's life. The most obvious is he met his physical needs, right? He, he healed him. This man had been born blind. So he opened his eyes. He, he helped him physically. But that's not all. He helped the man financially. He, this guy had been sitting there begging. He had no way to earn income. He had no way to support himself other than to beg. And when Jesus opens his eyes, he opens a whole new world of possibilities for the man. He now could go out and work. He could get a job. Jesus helps this man physically and financially. But he's not done yet. He helps the man relationally and emotionally too. Do you remember how uh, after he was healed, the Pharisees call him in and they interrogate him, they humiliate him, and they excommunicate him? And what does Jesus do? He seeks him out. He goes and finds him in the city. Verse 35, if you look at it with me, in verse 35 it says, I love how it says, Jesus said, or Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him. He heard that they'd thrown him out. He heard that this guy just got booted out, and Jesus went looking for him. How do you think it felt for that man having just been dressed down by the Pharisees and religious leaders, having just been excommunicated, to have Jesus come and say, hey, I was looking for you. He speaks to some deep emotional, relational, social needs in this man's life. But most of all, Jesus meets his spiritual need. Because in verse 36 or verse 35, he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man who has been healed said, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Verse 37 Jesus says, you've now seen him, and in fact, he's the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. Jesus sought out this man and met the deepest need in his life, which was spiritual sight, spiritual healing, restoring him to a relationship with God so his sins could be forgiven, so that he could know who Jesus is and believe and worship. Jesus did the works of God by meeting the needs of a man in great needs. So let me ask you a question. Do you think there is still a need to do the works of God in our day? You'd say, well, well, yeah, certainly there is. I mean, people are in need all around us. People are in great need. Probably some of us here are saying, I'm in great need. We've got needs in our family. We've got needs in our church family. We have needs in our communities. Yes, there's great need. That's why Jesus is saying there's a great need to do the works of God because there are great numbers of people in great need. But here's the problem, my friends. Here's the problem. Often when we encounter people in need, we respond. I'll put myself in this category. I can respond. Perhaps you can respond. We respond to those needs not like Jesus did, but like his disciples did, his first disciples they saw the same need Jesus did, but they responded very differently. Look back at our text, chapter 9. Look, pick it up in verse 2. When the disciples see this man sitting on the side of the road, begging and blind, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? So the disciples see this great need. They see this guy in great need. And they want to discuss his problem. They want to debate his problem. They want to dispense blame. Jesus, who's at fault here? Him or his parents? 
They want to assess it and assign blame. In fact, they give Jesus a multiple choice question there in verse two. They say, Jesus, help us out. We're trying to figure out why this guy is, such, is in such a world of hurt. Was it A, his fault, or B, his parents' fault? And Jesus answers in verse three, it's C, none of the above. That's not the issue here. Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, he's not saying that they'd never sinned. He's just saying that's not the reason this man is blind. But look what he says. This happens so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Jesus says, let me tell you how you're supposed to look at this need. You're not here to dispense blame. You're not here to discuss it and debate it. You're here to do something to display the works of God. So let me ask you to ask yourself a very personal question. Would you just make this one personal, not think about your family, your spouse, your friends, just would you take this one personal? Here's my question for you. When you encounter needs in people's lives, do you tend to respond more like the disciples or like Jesus? When you hear of some long-term friends of yours that are splitting up, they're divorcing. They just announced they're separating and they're going for a divorce. There's a great need there. When your, when your teenage son or your teenage daughter suddenly starts to turn sullen or surly, and you see that need going on. When, when one of your neighbors who's a bit loud and obnoxious, they're very opinionated on COVID and everything else, when they lose their cool at work and they lose their job, and you hear of their need, do you tend to respond more like the disciples who want to discuss it and debate it and dispense blame? Well, let me tell you why that's going on. Or do you respond more like Jesus who says, you know what this is? This is an opportunity to display the works of God. Jesus is saying that great needs around us are to prompt us not just to give our commentary on the situation, but to move us towards compassion like he had. And there's a great need in his day and our day to do the works of God. But Jesus isn't done yet. He has more to say to those disciples and to us. He's gonna tell us the second thing that we need to learn about doing the works of God, seizing the day. And it comes out again in verse 4. Look at our, our theme verse for the day one more time where it says, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Let me give you a second thing that's true. Yes, it's true that there is a great need to do the works of God. But the second thing I want you to see is this. There is a pressing urgency to do the works of God. There is a pressing urgency. There's not only a great need, there's an urgent sense like we need to seize the day. We need to do something now. Jesus says as much. He says as long as it is day, we got to do the works of God for night is coming when no one can work. Night is coming, he says. Now in John's gospel, one of the motifs that runs through the whole gospel of John is the interplay and juxtaposition of light and darkness, day and night. It's a theme that runs through the book. So in chapter one, Jesus is said to come into the world as the light who enlightens every man. Here in our chapter, chapter, five, chapter nine, verse five, Jesus says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But in John chapter three, John says, 
People live in darkness. In fact, he says people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So there's this play between day and night, light and darkness. And Jesus says in our verse, as long as it is day, we've got to do the works of God, for night is coming when no one can work. Like there's an urgency, like night's coming. Now that was literally true for Jesus. Night was coming for Jesus. Things were getting darker. As we're reading the Gospel of John, we come to chapter nine, things are getting darker because the religious leaders are starting to relentlessly pursue him and even plot to kill him. In fact, in chapter eight, look at the very last verse of chapter eight. Verse 59, it says, at this, they, the religious leaders, picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So there are people who want to kill Jesus, and they're getting momentum, and they're moving towards that. It's, it's getting darker. In fact, when we come to chapter 13, Jesus knows his time is very short, and he has what we call the Last Supper. You remember that? He has his, his group around him, and they have the Last Supper, and then he takes the bread and the wine, and he says, this is my body, this is my blood. You remember that? Well, at the end of that, if you just flip over to chapter 13, there's a little statement John adds that helps you understand what's going on. Chapter 13, verse 30 Jesus gives the morsel, the bread, to Judas and says, go out and do what you have to. And everyone thinks, well, Judas, he's our treasurer, so he just has to go do something for the group. But Judas was going out to betray Jesus. But look at verse 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. Look what John adds. And it was night. It was night. That's not just a statement about what time of day it was. John is saying, night is here. Jesus was saying a little earlier, night is coming when no one can work. Now in chapter 13, it's night. See, Jesus knew his time was short. When he healed this man, when he said night is coming, he knew he only had a limited time still to live before his death. And there was an urgency about him. We must do the works of God while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Let me tell you, my friends, night is coming for you and for me as well. Not just for Jesus, night is coming for all of us. There's a sense in which, on a global level, even on a national level, some of us are sensing things are getting darker. Our world is in a world of hurt. Today, Mark prayed for what's going on in Afghanistan, and there's Haiti, and we could just go around. It seems as though the darkness still closes in. Those of us who love and follow Jesus even sense that in this land that we love, there are things that are getting darker. Christians are more and more seen offside with the prevailing orthodoxy when it comes to gender and sexuality and life and death issues. It's like there is pressure mounting. Darkness is coming in some ways. But on a personal level, let me say to you this, night is coming for you too. Like Jesus, you have a limited time to live on the earth. Back in 2011, when I was serving in Ottawa, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I went through all the surgeries and the treatments, and God graciously gave me some extension. But I remember when I was first diagnosed, I went outside at a Christian conference center, and there was a giant cross there. And I sat there, and I stood all by myself, and I remember some tears falling down my cheeks and saying, Lord, 
I don't know if I got a little time or a lot of time, but I want to give to you what time I have. It's been 10 years now. In fact, last Sunday, I got my latest blood results left that, said, that told me that I'm still cancer-free. But every year, every year I take that test, and every year I'm thinking, I wonder if it's this year. In some ways, cancer did me a favor by reminding me that I'm not bulletproof, that night is coming for me. A couple of weeks ago, one of our beloved professors at Heritage, he's taught there for 30-plus years, Dr. Stan Fowler, had a massive stroke while he was down in the States and has spent the last month, and he's still in ICU. He just was able to get back to Canada. It's just a reminder to all of us that, you know, time is ticking, and night is coming, and Jesus says, listen, don't despair about that. Don't despair. It's still daytime, but seize the day. That's what verse 4 says. As long as it is day, it's still daytime for you. It's still daytime for me. It's still daytime in Canada, but Jesus says there's an urgency, so seize the day. Now, I need to hasten to add that even if you have that urgency, even if you have that sense of purpose, it doesn't mean you're supposed to live as some kind of frenetic, frantic person who never rests and who just goes around all the time. I know that because of what Jesus says a little bit later. In chapter 17, right before he goes to the cross, Jesus prays, and one of the things that he prays in chapter 17, verse 4, he says this. This is amazing. Listen. Jesus says to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Jesus says, Father, I glorified you by seizing the day and I finished the work you gave me to do. But wait a second, we say, there were still other blind people that you didn't heal. There were other needs that you didn't meet. How can you say, Jesus, how can you say to the Father, I finished the work you gave me to do? It's because, yes, we must be urgent about doing the work of God, but God's work is bigger than you. And you can finish what God has for you as long as you are doing what the Lord wants you to do. Pastor Ed preached a few sermons recently on hearing from God. He talked about the foghorns that help us know, what does God want me to do? Scriptures and prayer and counsel and even circumstance, things that that shape us. So let me ask you this question. There's a world of needs out there. But what of all those needs has God put across your path and on your heart? Like, is there a person that as I'm, as I'm talking to you today, you're seeing their face and you're saying, boy, they have some great needs. And God's put that on your heart or maybe as you saw the baptism today and heard about a family that opened their hearts a little wider and invited someone in from another place to be adopted in, maybe God is saying to you, you could do that. Or maybe as you hear about the impact of ministries like the kids' men here at Springvale, God says, I've given you a heart for that. You were made to do that. Seize the day. Get involved with that. You can't do everything, but you could do that thing. The day I stood at the cross when I first was diagnosed with cancer, I said, Lord, I don't know if I got a little or a lot, but whatever I got, I give you. 
And as I stood there, I just had this overwhelming sense that God was saying to me, train pastors, missionaries, and church leaders. And I, I went back and wrote it in my journal. I wasn't sure what it meant. I came home, went through all the treatments, and one day I got a call from Ed Fontaine. And Ed called me. He was on the board at Heritage, and he said, Rick, I'm calling you because our board thinks that maybe you should come and help this school. And I knew I couldn't say no because I had this sense that God was saying to me, here's a need you can meet. There are pastors who need to be trained. There are Christian leaders that need to be trained. And so when Pastor Ed called me, I had to say, Lord, is this it? See, what I'm saying to you is your calling and your positioning won't be the same as mine. But Jesus says to all his disciples, we must do the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming. Like night is coming when no one can work. So what is the need that God has put on your path or on your heart that he's saying to you? Seize the day. Do, do something. Don't just stand back and debate it. Don't just discuss it. Step into it. And you say to me, I would, but I don't know what to do. Like some of the needs that we face are so tangled and so mammoth that we go, I don't know what to do. What could one little person like me do in the face of these kind of needs? And that brings me to the third thing you need to know about seizing the day and doing the works of God. Shows up in our verse there in verse 4. See, the first thing we saw is there's a great need to do the works of God. And there is a pressing urgency to do the works of God. Here's the last thing I want you to see. And this will encourage your heart. Jesus is going to remind us in John 9, verse 4, there is divine assistance to do the works of God. There's divine assistance. Like, you don't have to do this all on your own strength. You don't have to do this in your own power. There is, there is God's help. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 4 again. Look what it says. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Jesus doesn't say, you must do the works. He says, we. He puts himself in the circle. He says, listen, you're going to be involved, but I'm with you. Let's do this together. We must do the works of God. See, Jesus knows what you got. You got nothing. I got nothing. But he's got all things. I know he says, I want you to work with me, and we will do the works of God. A little bit later in John's gospel, Jesus clarifies how that's going to play out. After the resurrection in John chapter 20, he meets with his disciples, and in John 20, 21, he says this, as the Father sent me, I am sending you, and then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So he says in John 9, we must do the works of him who sent me. Chapter 20, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, we have the power and the presence of Jesus through his spirit who lives in us to enable us to participate in doing the works of God. Like, do you lack the love you need to really meet needs? I go, I lack. My love is a shallow reservoir but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Do you lack the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness? You say, yeah, I do. I, I'm short on those things. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is all those things. Jesus says, you stay close to me and my Spirit who lives in you will fill you with what you need so that you can step in and do the works of God. I'm with you. You're not on your own. We'll do this together. My Spirit in you, but I want to use you. Back in 1990, 
If you're a basketball fan, you will enjoy hearing this little antidote. But back in 1990, a basketball player, one of the greatest of all time, a guy named Michael Jordan, scored 69 points in one game. Like, if you know nothing about basketball, you're going, is that a little or is that a lot? It's a lot. Like, normally, if somebody gets 30, it's like, wow, that was an amazing game. He got 69 points in one game. Near the end of the game, there was a rookie on the Chicago Bulls bench named Stacy King, and they put him in for the last few minutes when the game was already decided. Stacy King comes in, and he scores one point. I don't know how. Evidently, he probably got fouled, and he had two shots. He missed one and made one, so he scored one point. After the game, Stacy King was talking to reporters, and he said this, I'm always going to remember this night as the night Michael Jordan and I teamed up to score 70 points. <laughs> I think in heaven, some of us are going to go, I'm always going to remember those days on earth as the time Jesus and I teamed up to meet a need. I got one point. He got 69 I brought my tiny little bit, my five loaves, my two fish. He multiplied it. But I got in the game. I actually tried. I did something. I played for a few minutes. I broke a sweat. Because there's a great need to do the works of God. There's a pressing urgency to do the works of God. And because of Jesus' promise of his Holy Spirit who indwells those who love him, there is divine assistance to do the works of God. So Springvale, brothers and sisters, can I ask you, are you going to seize the day? You don't know what you get tomorrow. None of us do. But Jesus says it's still daytime. And while it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. For night is coming when no one can work. As I close, there is one last thing I want to say. Jesus said, night is coming when no one can work. That's true about humans. But night actually doesn't stop God from working. God works the night shift. In fact, if you read the Gospel of John, Jesus did his most powerful work at night. He met with Nicodemus at night. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane at night. And then when he hung on the cross... Midday, do you remember how the sky turned black? As black as night. You see, Jesus at night did the work you and I can't do. In fact, when he went to the cross, he paid for all of the sins of all of the world. And for whenever somebody like that blind man has the eyes to see, Jesus is the one who did that. Jesus is the one I need to follow. Whenever somebody like that blind man sees Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, I believe in you, and they worship him, Jesus says, my work that I did at night, it just works for you. So I want to say to you today, you got to do the works of God, but the first thing that he wants you to do is make sure you have your eyes open spiritually. And if you've never come to the place where you, like that man, look at Jesus by faith and you say, Jesus, I believe. I believe in you. I believe you're the Son of God. You're the one who paid for my sin. I want in. I want you. If you've never done that and surrendered your life to him, that's where you start. And the most powerful work that God will ever do in your life will take place because he'll forgive your sins and pull you into his family. And then he'll say to you, well, now that you're on the team, we must do the works of God, and you get to join him 
to make a difference in your world. And that makes life worth living, even in the midst of a pandemic. Can I just uh, close this in a word of prayer? The worship team's going to come, and they're going to lead us in a final song. But would you just bow your head and heart, and would you take a moment to process all of this, and specifically to ask the Lord this, Lord, what are the works of God you have for me to do? You know I'm just a guy that can score one point. I don't got a lot. But what is the one point you want me to score? What is the one thing you want me to do? What is the one need you want me to reach in and try to meet? Lord, if you'll give me the strength, if you'll give me the the insight, I can't heal anyone, but I could pray to you to be the healer. I can't solve anyone's big issues, but I can bring them towards you. Who is it? What is it? Where is it? because it's still daytime, and I want to seize the day. Would you just talk to him for a moment privately? And then after just a few moments of silence, Ashley and the team are going to lead us as we sing our final song of praise to the Lord. Let's pray.